From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. Same great show with a new name. Religion for Life is now Progressive Spirit, exploring the intersection of spirituality and social justice. I'm John Schuck. This week, my guest is Ned Roche of Jewish Voice for Peace, the Portland chapter. We're going to talk about the work of Jewish Voice for Peace and its stand for justice with Palestinians. Welcome, Ned, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Glad to have you here. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay. I um, have been in Portland for almost 30 years, and I'm very active in uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, as you mentioned. I also ride my bicycle everywhere and uh, have spent my career in the nonprofit world running nonprofit organizations. Well, talk a little bit about Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, when did you first get involved with that group? That's a great question. Um, I think it really goes back to uh, the 2008-2009 Israeli assault on Gaza. Okay. I'd always been involved in this issue, um, but at that moment when there was so much intensity happening and this onslaught of people in Gaza where more than 1,400 people were slaughtered and it was all over the web and myself and my friends were all talking about it nonstop. We wanted to get more organized here locally and do something constructive. We had been following the work of Jewish Voice for Peace, which was and is a national organization, and it just seemed like we needed to start a chapter here, and so we did. For me, it was really a coming home in that I grew up in a very traditional Jewish home, very Zionist, mm. and I studied in Israel. I lived in Israel for a while. I worked on a kibbutz uh, named after a Holocaust victim. Um, and so the whole Jewish experience and seeing Israel as the final step, or at least the current and last step in a long history of the Jewish people vis-a-vis anti-Semitism and the response to anti-Semitism, that was an enormous part of my growing up. And so for many years, I really believed that, that Israel was uh, the culmination of Jewish history, and you might even say uh, God intervening in, in human affairs to set history aright after 2,000 years worth of anti-Semitism um, mm-hmm. and millions of people killed in the Holocaust. So as I, as I got um, into college, I came from a very small town, and that was the first time when I was 18 years old, I really was exposed to Arabs at school. And there was something about them that I found appealing. I, I felt like maybe they had a piece of the story. Mm. You know, I, I think I'm looking back now and trying to fit this all together. At the time, I didn't know why I was doing this, but I was drawn to hearing their side of what happened in 1948 and subsequently. And from them, I heard a very different story. Uh, I heard a story of ethnic cleansing and of demolition of homes and villages and racism, and it wasn't what I was raised on. And so it was very, it was this moral dilemma I began to wrestle with, and I started doing more reading and more research, and I got more and more into this sort of moral quagmire where the only way I could make peace with myself over this issue was to say, you know, I think there are two narratives here. One is the Jewish narrative, one the Palestinian narrative, and because they're irreconcilable, that's why the conflict will never be solved. But the truth is, 
what was happening is that my heart was broken. That's what mm. could not be solved. Because this dream that I grew up with of Israel really being a light unto the nations and a place that we Jews could take so much pride in, that was beginning to get shattered by the reality, not just of the stories I was hearing from these Arab students, who I didn't know if at the time were telling me the truth or making stuff up, but the more I did research and the more I read Israeli Jewish historians who were uncovering in the late 80s what actually happened in 1948, the more it became clear to me that, um, wow, that everything I had been raised on was more mythology than fact. And you are going to college in Israel? No, no. I went to um, college in Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh. I did my junior year of college at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. But you had first met these other Arab students when you were at Pittsburgh. Exactly. What really propelled me was one Palestinian student that I uh, became friends with in, in college. And he said to me at one point, you know, this dual narrative that you have of there's the Palestinian version and the Jewish version, he said, Honestly, Ned, that's not good enough. I appreciate you trying to sort of understand it that way, but you're capable of going beyond that. He said, I'm not going to tell you what to do or what to think or what the answer is, but I really encourage you to research this deeply because, sure, there are two narratives, but there's really only one history of what actually happened. Yeah, there's a truth that goes beyond both of them or it goes deeper than each of them. And as he said this to me, mm -hmm. and essentially he said what you just paraphrased, John, I felt my heart pounding in my chest. And I knew that he was saying something to me that I needed to really take seriously. And it um, started me off or continued me on one of the great journeys of my life. And that was really bringing into sync, you know, bringing together my values. I'd become an activist. I'd become progressive. So my values around politics and human relations with my attitude towards the state of Israel and the Palestinian struggle. And for years, I was in such internal conflict over that. And it took me decades, literally, to peel away the various layers of the onion skin to get to a place where I now can say that I feel more Jewish than ever. Because hmm. now I stand for the Jewish traditions and teachings, which, like any religion, require us to work for justice and to stand with the oppressed and to call out the oppressor. And so now when I stand in solidarity with my Palestinian sisters and brothers in their struggle for freedom and for justice, I feel like I'm doing it from an absolutely Jewish place. So what was the moment then for you in which the, the turmoil of, of the mythology of the stripping away, the, the deconstructing, turned into some positive construction. Yeah, I think that um, it's hard to point to one specific uh -huh. event because it is like peeling away the layers of the yeah. onion. For me to come to a point in my life where it seemed like the mainstream Jewish community was saying to me, if you're Jewish— then you need, to set, you need to justify Israel. You need to support Israel. Mm -hmm. You need to stand with Israel no matter what it does. You can criticize a few things here and there, but basically you need to be on our side. And so that merger of Judaism and the political entity of Israel 
to me was very hard to stomach. And at some point that became somewhat impossible. And if those two needed to go together, then I opted out, to be really frank. I threw the baby out with the bathwater because I couldn't any longer go along with what the mainstream Jewish community was saying, which is, you know, a belief that somehow Jews are entitled to things that the Palestinians aren't, when in fact I knew that the Palestinians are the indigenous people of that land. And European Jews, of course, were fleeing horrific, nightmarish conditions in Europe, but that doesn't give anyone the right to throw another group of people out to make way for yourself. And so, you know, I was working through all of that stuff, and there was an epiphany. I mean, there were several along the way. One was mm-hmm. the one I just shared of the man telling me, you know, I want you to seek the truth for yourself. Right. That was powerful. Another was when I was in um, the West Bank, occupied territory, and um, Friday evening was happening, and I was you know, in the West Bank, and I could see a Jewish settlement, and I saw the lights you know, of Shabbat, of Sabbath. And I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, that, that's my community over there. I mean, I, I sort of feel like it would be nice maybe to be part of that. But then a moment later, I realized that that really wasn't my community anymore because it wasn't the Jewish part I was rejecting, but the settler mentality, the colonialism that says this land is Jewish land and doesn't belong to the Palestinians, that I was rejecting. Mm -hmm. And I found that my new community, which I'm so proud to be part of, was the community I was with, which were Palestinians and Jews and other internationals who are working for justice in this in this cause, and I'm proud to be part of that. Well, what was that like as you're going through um, this discovery of your own, and you're not the only one having this conflict, uh, with, with your family or with your uh, fellow members of, of your synagogue? Were they all having this conversation too, or was it a conversation that we just don't have, or, um, or was there honest discussion about it? That was very painful. I think for all of us that have been down this road, um, there is deep pain because for many within the Jewish community, this is a place they just are not yet ready to go. They refuse to go. They're afraid to go because there's so much fear and there's so much propaganda that we've all been raised with that says that the Palestinians want to throw Jews into the sea and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. I've met literally thousands of Palestinians, and I've never heard anyone say that. Um, And I think that, you know, it's very difficult for us to give up that ideal that Israel really is a, if not a perfect system, place, ideology, it's something pretty close to that. And for we Jews who have um, for so long been victims, largely of, you know, Christian Europe, to see ourselves as oppressors and another people as victims, that's very, very painful. And so most Jews don't go there. They can't go there. They're just not ready. So I, you know, I found that many members in my family just think that what I'm doing is absolutely wrong and I'm stabbing my own people in the back and uh, I've become a self-hating Jew, according to them, all of which couldn't be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. In fact, as I said, I feel 
that I'm doing this from the most Jewish place I know. And, and that feels whole. And I no longer have to hide, you know, my true heart from people I'm talking with. I'm just forthcoming. And there's a certain comfort and there's a certain joy that comes from that. You're listening to Progressive Spirit. My guest is Ned Roche of Jewish Voice for Peace, the Portland chapter. How many are involved in the Portland chapter and the national organization? In this chapter, we have a core group of about 30 people that are active, and then we have another three or four times that many that are on our mailing list. Nationwide, there are over 200,000 um, online supporters, and uh, the, chapter, uh, the chapters are growing. There are over 65 in the country. And uh, actually, we have more likes on Facebook than APAC, the enormous Israel lobby. Uh-huh. So Jewish Voice for Peace is now the fastest growing Jewish organization in the country. Is there a divide within generations as well within the Jewish community in America? Are more and more people realizing, uh, young Jews, coming to realization that you had? There is a significant divide. You know, my parents' generation who were people that were alive during the Holocaust, uh, that was so traumatic that for many of them, they never will. Um, you know, there's a, mm. the former speaker of the Knesset in Israel, Avram Berg, wrote a book called The Holocaust is Over and We Need to Rise from Its Ashes. The mm. Holocaust happened, of course, and we have to remember it and work from that. But we can't let the Holocaust so restrict our actions and our movement and our thinking about possibility for coexistence, for peace, for justice. We can't let that limit us so much that we become immobilized. And I think that many in my parents' generation are stuck because of it. And I I understand that. I, I certainly came from a very similar background. Among young people, like our son's generation, um, it's very different. You know, when they're being asked to leave their liberal or progressive values at the door to enter the sanctuary of Zionism, they say, no, I'm bringing my values with me. And, uh, you know, for example, on college campuses, the Jewish, the main Jewish group is called Hillel. And Hillel at a national level has a policy that says that Jewish Voice for Peace or any group that supports justice for the Palestinian people, justice for all people, Jews and Palestinians, is not welcome, cannot be allowed inside the Hillel organizations on college campuses in America. So there are a number of Jewish students now that are fighting against that, and they've created something called Open Hillel, which Mm. says this should be a place where college students, we're exploring the world, we're learning, we're growing. This should be a place where all views are welcome so we can sort of duke it out and we can see what we believe in. And so there's that kind of generational split is significant. Is there a possibility of any kind of compromise? What, what is, what is the, the end story? I mean, uh, one vote for, for every person who lives in the area. It seems to me logical. But when I bring that up to uh, some people, they would say, well, that's the end then of, of Israel. Is that the end? I, I think it's, um, it's the end of an idea. And mm-hmm. that's why this is so painful. Ultimately, I think you're right. I mean, who are we to predict? I mean, you know, the people yeah. over there need to work this out, but it seems that the only logical outcome is one person, one vote. So that's what transpired in South Africa when apartheid finally bit the dust. But it wasn't the end of apartheid. It wasn't the end of South Africa. It was the end of apartheid. And you could say 
that the boycott movement against apartheid South Africa actually saved South Africa. It didn't destroy it. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're going to see ultimately a similar kind of thing with Israel, that this notion that we Jews need an exclusive state for Jews only, where Jews have rights that are supreme to other peoples, that's a notion that really, it should be in the dustbin of history. It's anachronistic, I would it's think. It's very anachronistic. And, you know, we Jews are 2% of the American population, and yet this is a pretty good place for Jews to live. You don't need to be a majority to have a good quality of life. We need to be a nation of laws and respect for laws, and those laws need to be inclusive of all peoples. And that's the evolution that Israel at some point will have to go through. Because right now there really is only one country. And those who wanted a two-state solution, whether that was a good idea or not, it's Israel's own actions through their settlement policies of the West Bank that have made the two-state option now something that is impossible. And the question is, will it remain an apartheid state, which is what it is, because Jews have rights and many Palestinians don't? That's apartheid. So will it remain an apartheid state or will it move to become a democratic state where everyone, Jews and Palestinians, will have equal rights? If you're just joining us, this is Progressive Spirit. I'm speaking with Ned Roche of Jewish Voice for Peace the Portland chapter. Both the Methodist and the Presbyterian Church national bodies will be meeting in Portland this summer. The Israel-Palestine issue will be one of the major issues. The Methodists recently divested holdings from five Israeli banks. The Presbyterians two years ago divested from Hewlett-Packard, Motorola, and Caterpillar for their respective roles in selling products that Israel uses in its occupation of Palestine. That vote to approve the divestment at the Presbyterian Assembly was intense. It won by only seven votes, 310 to 303. And a resolution to reverse that action will come up this summer. The argument that disturbed many commissioners from the Israeli side was that voting to divest would fracture Jewish-Presbyterian relations. It would be anti-Jewish, even anti-Semitic. Many commissioners were torn on one hand by the call of social justice for the Palestinians, and on the other hand, not wanting to alienate Jewish friends. Was this action anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic? What we're seeing and what that shows, I believe, is that Israel and its supporters have really lost the moral argument and the historical argument. So mm -hmm. they no longer really argue the facts that Israel is right and that the Palestinians are historically wrong or that Israel, it's a moral proposition to occupy another people. They can't argue that. So they go for the jugular. They go for what they know will hurt because no one wants to be called a racist or an anti-Semite. And because Christians have a tremendous amount of guilt over mm. at least a thousand, if not more years of anti-Semitism, um, and there's even stuff that's been written about, you know, the Vatican and the Pope knowing what was happening in the concentration camps of Europe, but because of investments and holdings chose to really look the other way. So there's a tremendous amount of guilt that Christians right. feel. So when they're called anti-Semites, it hurts and it does exactly what those who call people anti-Semites wanted to do. It stops Christians in their track from doing what they know is right. And so I would encourage people to look deeply in your hearts. And if you support justice for the Palestinian people because you dislike Jews, then you probably are an anti-Semite. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. But if you do this work because you believe in justice for all people, that is not anti-Semitism. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's, that's a Jewish value. It's a Christian value. It's what we all should do. And so the boycott movement that you were describing or the divestment movement that the Presbyterian Church took two years ago, uh, the vote that they took two years ago, it, it's in line with really some of the great moral leaders and accomplishments throughout history. It's in line with Gandhi and with Dr. Martin Luther King, and with Cesar Chavez. It's part of the history of Montgomery and the bus mm-hmm. boycott and apartheid South Africa. And so it's a very time-tested, nonviolent, and moral position to take. And the only way that the other side can fight against it is to call us, you and me, anti-Semitic. So we need to understand that's their tactic and know that that comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you're doing the right thing, you can stand tall and withstand those barbs. More and more institutions, Christian bodies, universities are taking the risk uh, that you mentioned for social justice and the response of anti-Semitism or attempts to silence or discredit voices. Does this signify that uh, the the game is up? I mean, it isn't a win yet on one hand, Mm -hmm. but it's already happened. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think that we all need to be clear that there is an enormous difference between Zionism, which is a political ideology, mm-hmm. and Israel, which is a state, on the one hand, and on the other hand, Jews and Judaism, right, which is a people and a religion. Now, if you criticize Jews or Judaism unfairly, that's probably anti-Semitism. If you criticize an ideology that's political like Zionism or a state, that's probably not anti-Semitic if, in fact, what you're criticizing is something that deserves to be criticized. Again, for example, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, many of us criticized the actions of our government. That didn't make us anti-American or anti-white people. It made us good citizens. We're doing what we have a responsibility to do. So in terms of your question as to whether the game's up, I think that what the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement does is very interesting. It was called in 2005 by more than 170 civil society groups in Palestine who said governments, the UN, are really doing nothing to stop the Israeli encroachment on our land. We ask the people of the world to stand up and take a stand on this very ethical issue against the Israeli exploitation of Palestinian land and people. And that's only been a decade. Mm -hmm. And in that decade, this movement has mushroomed. And what's interesting about it is that on the military battlefield, Israel's a superpower. There's no one that can match in the Middle East Israel. And it shows that when it attacks Gaza and just demolishes buildings and lives and infrastructure and so on. The boycott movement takes this battle to a different battlefield, and that is to the battlefield of morality. And there, Israel can't compete. And that's why they're so afraid of this. And that's why they call anyone that works in this movement an anti-Semite, because that's, again, all they have left. But um, I think you're right. There is no way they can stop this movement for justice 
through boycott and divestment because it's spreading and every year there are more and more victories. Israel has actually called the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement an existential threat to their existence. So they see what it Mm -hmm. is and they don't know how to stop it. And that's, again, an encouraging thing because just as the anti-apartheid movement saved South Africa from what many people predicted would be just a bloody civil war, this movement might save many, many lives and help to transition peacefully from an apartheid state to a democratic state. Uh, We just really have a couple of minutes left. Time went very quickly, but tell me a little bit about Jewish Voice for Peace here in Portland and what you're working on now. There are two campaigns that we're very involved in locally. One is called Occupation Free Portland. So it's following in the uh, footsteps of the Presbyterian Church and others that have divested from several companies. So there are several companies, Hewlett Packard, Motorola, G4S, and Caterpillar, Mm -hmm. who are notorious for profiting from their complicity in the Israeli occupation of Palestinian land. And church groups for a decade now have been talking with these companies saying, you really shouldn't be making money off people's suffering. And every of each one of these companies has basically ignored that plea and continue to just reap tremendous benefit. So we're saying to the city of Portland, those four companies ought to be on a do not buy list for the city's investments. It's a very exciting campaign. We went to the Human Rights Commission. Human Rights Commission endorsed our campaign mm-hmm. um, at a contentious hearing where the other side came and made all kinds of accusations of anti-Semitism. But the Human Rights Commission saw this for what it was, and Mm -hmm. that is this is a campaign that says Portland should not have its dollars invested in companies that are egregiously abusing human rights. We hope to get the city council to adopt this campaign as well. A second thing that we're working on is Jews standing against Islamophobia. Yes. And so we really believe that... um, This is one of the opportunities that is presented to Jewish people and others of goodwill and of conscience to right now take a stand against Islamophobia. And if people want to get in touch with you and get involved, how do they do that? Yeah, if you just go to jvp.org, you'll be able to track us down. Ned Roche of Jewish Voice for Peace, thanks for your good work and for being with me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, John. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. Find links to podcasts at progressivespirit.org net progressive spirit.net i'm john shock well 